0: You're listening to Fair Play on JustiCenews.net.
1: Welcome to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Tadiki. Today, we're looking at the case of Lydell Grant, who spent more than nine years in prison for a murder he did not commit. And joining me today to talk about this case is Lydell's attorney, Mike Ware, who's a criminal defense lawyer based out of Fort Worth in Texas. Mike is also an adjunct professor at the Texas a School of Law and is the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas. Thank you for joining me, Mike, and welcome to Fair Play. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate your time. What is the background of Lydell's case, and what made you pick it up?
2: Lydell was um, falsely accused of a murder back in 2010, and uh, the brief circumstances were that uh, there there was, in fact, um, a brutal, really public murder that took place in the Montrose area of Houston, Texas, on the night of December the 10th of 2010. That was a Friday night. Um, there are a lot of nightclubs in the district, and this murder happened to take place on the parking lot of one of the nightclubs in front of, of uh, a lot of witnesses. Okay six of which ultimately testified in the case. Um, the uh, the victim came running up the steps of the nightclub, I think it's called Club Blur, and begged to be uh, allowed inside, said someone was trying to kill him. Uh, the bouncers turned him away, said, you guys just keep it outside. Wow. And ultimately the perpetrator caught up with him, tackled him, they wrestled. Um, The perpetrator stabbed him several times, beat him. At one point, the victim got away, ran, but was tackled again and was murdered there in front of um, several witnesses. Uh, The perpetrator then walked off into the night. No one knew either the victim or the perpetrator. Uh, Obviously, the police were called. Uh, Eyewitnesses gave um, recorded interviews uh, over the next 12 to 24 hours. Um, There were no known suspects. Uh, The victim was identified. Uh, People knew him. He was from... He he lived in that area. Uh, No one knew, but still no one, even the people who knew the victim had no idea who would have done this. Okay. And no one knew where the, the victim had been or what he had been doing for the hours leading up to this that might... Um, you know, cause something like this to happen. And so, um, I guess for about 24 hours, um, the case was completely unsolved. Mm -hmm. Now, the following evening, which would have been a Saturday night, uh, Mr. Grant was parking his car in that very parking lot where the murder had taken place. Of course, he had no idea um, that a murder had taken place in that parking lot 24 hours before. Um, He had not... He, he knew nothing about the murder. He, um, in fact, had an alibi, uh, as it turned out, for where he was and who he was with um, the night before when the murder had taken place. But one of the bouncers or one of the, the workers uh, from the nightclub saw him and thought he looked similar, at least, to the person who had committed the murder in that parking lot 24 hours prior and called Crime Stoppers. And, uh, and, I, and I believe collected a, a cash reward ultimately. But he uh, reported that he saw someone who he believed similar in appearance to the murderer uh, and he somehow got the, uh, got the identifying number of the vehicle Mr. Grant was driving and, um, and reported that as well. And the, the investigators on the case were able to put Mr. Grant with that car and ultimately put his photo in a six person photo spread and got, I guess, six of the witnesses to pick his photo out of the photo spread as the person they saw commit the murder. And Mr. Grant was arrested, I believe, the following Monday after the Friday night murder, based on this. And of course, you know immediately the media um, and the police proclaimed that they had caught this guy. And, um, you know, if you read the media accounts right after the arrest, they describe the crime in terms of first, Mr. Grant did this first then Mr. Grant did that. Then Grant did this They don't even say the perpetrator. They don't even say a suspect. They just tell the story as if it, it has been decided that Lydell committed this murder. And of course, they get that story from the police.
1: Wow. Unbelievable. What were some of the most shocking things for you in this case? Interestingly, early in the investigation,
2: there's a notation in the investigative report that says that the fingernails of the victim should be collected at the autopsy so that they can be tested uh, for uh, foreign DNA. Because in, in a, um, a murder that involved a hand-to-hand struggle, The DNA in the fingernails could be very probative as to who committed the murder, just as the DNA from a sexual assault kit can be very probative of who committed the sexual assault. And so a note was made in the investigative file that the fingernails should be collected at the autopsy and tested for um, foreign DNA, and, and whatever profile that might reveal should be compared to any suspect and to put into the national database. Now, that was done in um, 2011 by the Houston Police Department Crime Lab. Mm-hmm. They um, tested the fingernails, and I believe it was the right-hand fingernails had a mixture of two donors of, the, of DNA. And, and one of the donors was the victim, which, of course, you expect to find the victim's DNA yeah. in his body part and the other was an unknown male donor and ultimately the testimony at trial you know of course the six eyewitnesses identified Lydell Grant as the perpetrator you know there in the courtroom that's always a very dramatic moment uh, many times as in this case it's total bs mm-hmm. but it's very convincing to a jury for you know the the nervous or frightened witness or victim to uh, point to the defense table and say, that's the, that's the perpetrator over there, you know, wearing, you know, whatever, you know, sitting next to, uh, his or her defense lawyer, you know, there's no doubt in my mind. I would not forget that face anywhere. Well, many times that's BS, but it's very effective to a jury. Yeah. And it worked, it worked in this case and just, you know, multiply that times six. Wow.
1: Is that it? Or there's more to
2: this. And and then the police crime lab forensic person got on the stand and testified inaccurately that number one, testified that there was a mixture uh uh you know, of DNA donors in the victim's fingernails and that the victim could not be excluded as one of the donors, but also testified that Lydell Grant could not be excluded as the other donor. And so, of course, that didn't help his case at all. Hmm. Um, and he was convicted. He lost his appeals. He filed one writ, I believe, before he contacted us. He lost that. And then he contacted us uh, at the Innocence Project of Texas. And in 2018, um, I assigned you know, his case to one of my students. We, you know, Usually, um, every semester, I, I have... You know about 12 students in my clinic, and each of them get a case. And his was one that I assigned. And uh, and then we discuss them in class. And discussing uh, Mr. Grant's case in class, uh, and and looking at the uh, written materials we had been able to uh, collect and gather in reviewing his case, we could clearly see that he was excluded as as the foreign donor of male DNA uh, in the victim's fingernails. Wow. And so, having seen that, we went back and looked at the testimony, the trial transcript, to see how they had dealt with that at trial. And what we saw was that the state's witness basically just lied.
1: So basically— I mean, that,
2: that, that may be a strong term, basically testified inaccurately. Uh, because even uh, a even strong we term, see, but the truth that he lied. Well, it was she. She. Um, um, it wasn't he. Okay. But um, you know, it 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 was couched very carefully, and and um, you know, other forensic people have sort of defended the testimony, but the students and I could see that he was excluded from the mixture. So why? To me, that's what the testimony should have been.
1: Yeah.
2: And, uh, and the defense attorney did not cross examine on that. The defense attorney pretty much accepted that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And and so, you know, it's been my experience that when, uh, and, and usually um, that, that's the problem with having forensic labs connected with police departments. The police go in there and they tell the forensic um, person what to testify to. Mm. And, of course, there's an, an, an incredible pressure on them to testify the way the police tell them to, because they're part of the police department. Wow. And um, and so I, I, something like that, I'm sure, happened in this case. Mm. Um, you know, we we can't prove that. We just know that the testimony was not accurate, and it, it was very damaging to Mr. Grant. And had it been accurate, it, it would have been very helpful to Mr.
0: Grant. You're listening to Fair Play on justicenews.net. You're listening to Fair Play on justicenews.net.
1: Welcome back to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui. And today, we're speaking with criminal defense attorney Mike Ware, who represented Lidell Grant in his fight against his wrongful conviction in 2010 for a murder he did not commit but spent time in prison for that. How important of a role did DNA evidence play in this case? The foreign profile was never put
2: into the national database by the police as the investigative report recommended. At least as far as we know, it never was. Now, you could say that back then, um, the technology was such, it was difficult to get a profile from a mixture that was CODIS eligible. That CODIS is the... Um, national database that it, it should have been uploaded into and there are all kinds of rules and regulations it, it's possible that at that point they could not unwind the mixture sufficiently such that it would have been eligible for a CODIS upload okay but in any event you can see on its face that mr. Grant is excluded from the mixture. So it, it's been my experience when when the state when prosecutors have to fudge the truth, or illicit lies in court, that's a red flag, yep. you know. It doesn't necessarily mean the person is innocent. Uh, it could just mean that, you know, the prosecutors, um, you know, believe that the person is guilty, they are guilty, and that being the case, they believe the ends justify the means. But, uh, but sometimes, you know, when um, they're fudging the truth or stretching the truth or, or out and out lying that can be a red flag that maybe someone's actually innocent um, because otherwise why do they have to lie to get a conviction? Yeah. Why do they have to fudge the truth to get a conviction? So we explored further and we were able to get the raw data from the original 2011 testing of the fingernails. Did they try to push you back? You know, there was some talk about retesting everything but my particular Opinion at the time was why do we need to retest everything? Mm. The the test from 2011 excludes them. So why? You know, the testimony at trial was false. Why do we need to retest it? Let's let's get a second opinion on the raw data that generated the report from 2011 that was testified to in 2012.
1: Unbelievable.
2: So we did that. We got the raw data. We hired a, a a DNA expert in, in this field, Angie Ambers, and she facilitated us getting the raw data to a company called Cybergenetics in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Cyber Genetics uses, uh, 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 I guess, the, a software that um, uses algorithms to unwind DNA mixtures from raw data. Um, it's called probabilistic genotyping. Wow, and law enforcement um, labs use the same type of software in unwinding mixtures. Uh, in Texas, uh, all the law enforcement agencies use what's called StarMix, but it's a it's a very similar. Um, program, software program, to unwind mm-hmm. DNA mixtures. Now, that was not really available back in 2011, in all fairness. But in 2019, um, when we got the raw data, it had become the, uh, the best practice, the recognized best practice for, for unwinding um, DNA mixtures. Wow. And so we sent it to them, and they were able to unwind the mixture and come up with a – number one, they definitely excluded Mr. Grant from the mixture. That's heavy. And they were able to um, get a sufficient profile of the unknown donor so as to uh, have it uploaded into the CODIS database. <laughs> At that point, we had Mr. Grant being excluded as opposed to what was testified to a trial from the DNA mixture and uh we have an unknown donor um we don't know who it is mm. well that it was uploaded into codis i don't know within 10 days um we're notified that there's a hit um that the uh unknown donor uh from the fingernails matches uh, a known offender who has been up- whose profile's been uploaded into the codis database Wow, and it turns out, of course, then you go, "Well, who is this person? you know I mean, it's yeah, pretty much matched or certainly fit within the the range of descriptions that all the witnesses gave, same age, same height, same weight, same race, and that was Jemerrich Carter, correct, and so now, you know, not only is Lydell excluded, but we know who did it who who is whose DNA it is under the fingernails. He, he um, uh, was in Houston during that period of time. I understand we're talking about 2019, yeah. but in 2010, he was in Houston. Um, he had been arrested very close to the spot where this murder had taken place for, uh, I think it was a, a, a drug related incident. He had been in jail in, in the Harris County jail, He but he was not in jail at the time that this murder took place. And, you know, further investigations show he had left Houston pretty soon after this murder took place and and was in the Atlanta, Georgia area. So we took that information to the district attorney's office in the summer of 2019. Uh, Now simultaneously, the district attorney's office had wanted to retest the fingernails clippings uh, with the Texas Department of Public Safety lab. So we said, that's fine. And you know y'all can do that, but you know in the meantime we're going to do you know what what we did do. And so when we got back to them with that information, they still didn't have the results back from the Texas Department of Public Safety. Really? Um, and so I, I guess they were skeptical about what we were telling them. Man. But by August, um, DPS had come back with their results. And they agreed that Lydell Grant was excluded as the foreign donor, but they they said that they were not able to get a sufficient clear profile of the additional donor so to upload it into Codis. Well, you know we had already done that and gotten a result. Yeah. I guess I'm glad we didn't have to rely on the Texas Department of Public Safety. True. But anyway, they they did agree they did agree that um, the uh, that Lydell was excluded. So to that extent, they were consistent. Mm -hmm. We claimed, we asserted that that was favorable uh, DNA results and that he should be out on bail. We uh, scheduled, the the, the DA's office at that point was contesting bail, wow. We scheduled a hearing, the DA's office showed up and and, and claimed they needed a continuance. So we didn't, you know, we had his whole family there uh, ready to testify and others, you know, friends and such. Uh, so we didn't have a hearing, and he stayed in jail.
1: Unbelievable.
2: We said, okay, well, then we, we, if you're not ready for this hearing, then let's set it for another hearing right now. And so we set it for a hearing at what would have been, I guess, the day before Thanksgiving of November 19. Uh, shortly before, a, a day or two before the hearing, the district attorney's office called me and said they would agree to a bail. And so we didn't need to have the hearing. And so... Um, they agreed to a $100,000 bail. Wow. So um, we said, okay, you know, it's, it, we, uh, um, it's time for Lydell to get out. Um, and um, we managed to raise enough money that a bail bondsman made his bail. Wow. And, um, and he was released and, and out before Thanksgiving of 2019. And then the actual killer confessed. In December of 2019. Uh, On the Friday before Christmas, I think Christmas was the middle of the next week or something, I got a a call from the district attorney's office and they said that um, Carter had been arrested in the Atlanta area and I guess was in the Fulton County Jail and that the uh, two Houston Police Department cold case detectives had been working on the case, had flown out there. And they had interviewed him uh, in a video recorded interview and uh, that he had confessed to the murder and that uh, they were going to agree to relief on Lydell's case. Wow. And so we uh, quickly um, moved to um, get proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law, the way uh, the procedure works. You've got to present those to the district judge, you know, of the original Court of Conviction. Um, He signed off on on our agreed findings of fact and conclusions of law that Lydell was actually innocent. And uh, I, I believe it was before the end of the month, before the end of December, if not, it was early January. Those had made their way to Austin, to the Court of Criminal Appeals, you know, on agreed relief. I expected a pretty quick turnaround. I mean, this is kind of a no-brainer, uh, particularly since both everybody agreed, the police agreed, the DAs agreed, the judge agreed, um, and you know it was a DNA exoneration, and there was a confession by the actual perpetrator. I mean, it was you know a no-brainer. I expected a very short, perfunctory opinion, and everybody would go on to the next case, and Lydell would go on with his life. But. In uh, uh, April of two, of 2020, they sent back an order saying they wanted to view the confession videotape and to please send them the confession videotape. Well, I thought that was kind of odd. You know, I mean, <laughs> did they think we were lying about it? <laughs> I mean, what, what what was the deal? And uh, they, did they just have idle curiosity? Um but um, so we sent it to them, of course, and um, and, and, and waited and waited. And um, um, and then in July, they sent back another order. Um, and I, I think this was, you know, right before they broke for the rest of the summer. Wow. Uh, and, and I and I sent back another order saying that ordering the district judge to order the six eyewitnesses to give affidavits about what they thought about Mr. Grant's claims of innocence.
1: Well, they didn't want to let him go.
2: I, I, I don't know. You know, it, it was, everybody agrees they had never seen anything like that. I mean, we have, yeah, uh, you know, Mike Hall did an excellent um, story for Texas Monthly, and he interviewed former uh, judges from the Court of Criminal Appeals, and they said they had never seen anything like it. You know, so it's not just me saying that.
0: This is Fair Play on Justicenews.net. This is Fair Play on Justicenews.net.
1: Welcome back to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Tadiki. And today we're speaking with criminal defense attorney Mike Ware, represented Lydell Grant in his fight against his wrongful conviction in 2010 for the murder he did not come in. You have called Lydell's case the most outrageous thing you've ever seen. Why do you think that is?
2: That's specifically referring to um, the Court of Criminal Appeals ordering the six affidavits from um, uh, or the judge to order the six eyewitnesses to give affidavits. I have I, handled a lot of DNA exonerations. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that. I've never seen, you know, if someone um, is convicted on the basis of eyewitness identification and then the DNA proves they didn't do it, then that's the end. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, sometimes victims are very skeptical uh, and claim that, that you know, the wrong guy's been let go, uh, that they were right all along, or eyewitnesses are skeptical, but it doesn't matter. They were just wrong. You can't argue with DNA. Right, because the science proves that they're wrong. Yeah. Well, particularly when we, when we know as much about eyewitness identifications, we now know it's not reliable. Yeah. You know, uh, particularly if they've been manipulated by the police or by the prosecutors. And uh, so it really, at that point, it, it, it doesn't matter what the witnesses say. Yeah. And, 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 and the Court of Criminal Appeals wanting us to, to get affidavits from the witnesses showed, indicated to me, a naivety at best and uh, totally uninformed, you know, at worst. And uh, I mean, this was a clean exoneration. Why did they want to send us out to try to muddy it up with who knows what these witnesses would say at this point? You know they would probably be very defensive about their about um, their choices. I mean nobody wants to say their uh, mistaken testimony put an put an uh, an innocent person in prison. Why why did they want to publicly embarrass these witnesses? You know why did they want to interfere? with the prosecution of the actual perpetrator, which their order very much did interfere, or potentially could interfere,
1: with the with the prosecution of the actual perpetrator. To punish them? Well... How dare you come up and say all these things? You
2: know, there's lots of things about the case that, that are tragic and terrible, but what I was referring to when I said outrageous, that, that's specifically what I was referring to.
1: Knowing grand is not your first, and, and hopefully won't be our last exonerate. Why is it so tough to get an innocent man out of prison? Well, for a number of reasons.
2: Um, I mean, one, um, you know, until, until the DNA exoneration started happening in, um, you know, the 90s and into the 2000s, no one, no one, that was part of the system, would admit that an innocent person had ever been convicted. Mm-hmm. You know, I, well, maybe there's the, you know, the occasional famous case, you know, but other than that, it, 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 you know, it was pretty much considered to be a movie or TV thing where innocent people got convicted, but not in real life. Now, the DNA cases changed that completely, uh, changed the narrative on that, because, because once you once you study those dna exonerations you see exactly where the system went wrong and you see how terrible the system can be and you see how innocent people were railroaded and you just have to wonder how common that is in cases where there is no dna yeah so i think even today we're still fighting that bias that well the system gets it right you know Ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time, and so um, uh, and so we're you know we're we're going to go with finality. There's also a, a bias a, a about embarrassing uh, the people in power, and it's of course people in power that put people in prison. Mm. And and every time the people in power are shown to have put an innocent person in prison. They're they're either embarrassed or they should be, Um, you know. I think some of them are beyond being embarrassed, but um, and could care less. But um, but there's a reluctance for people in power to embarrass other people in power. Uh, I think there's a a reluctance of the Court of Criminal Appeals judges in power to embarrass, you know, powerful district attorneys, uh, powerful assistant prosecutors. Uh, powerful police unions, so I, I think there's there's that going for too. Plus, the law is the law is in in you know it, in Texas anyway. The Court of Criminal Appeals made this law that it is a Herculean burden to prove that someone is innocent once they've been convicted. And so um, we've got strong cases uh, that have been turned down because they say, well, you know. Maybe it's more probably than not that this person's innocent, but you haven't met your Herculean burden uh, to prove that this person is innocent. You know, the the law um, favors finality, even if it's the wrong result. The the law makes it very difficult. Oftentimes, unfortunately, um, wrongfully convicted individuals will file their own pro se writs, and the law in Texas, and it's Pretty much everywhere that once you file one writ, even if it's a pro se, writ filed without an attorney, that's your one bite at the apple. So you lose; they lose their homemade, uh, homemade without an attorney pro se writ, and and then attorneys can't do anything for them because they've already used their one bite at the apple, mm. um, so to speak. So th- there, there's a number of, of things um, that uh, make it very difficult. Both legally, uh, philosophically,
1: politically, et cetera, that make it difficult to win these cases. And you think that's also tied to the fact that to ma- to be able to make a better example, we never see a corrupt judge or a corrupt prosecutor being prosecuted. Well, we just recently got one. Um, I say we did. Um,
2: um, one of our exonerees, Dennis Allen, out of Dallas. Yeah. Um, That's true, has been exonerated, and and, um, the prosecutor in his case...
1: Isn't that rare news? It is.
2: It is. I I guess that's why it made the New York Times and the Washington Post, and not just the Dallas Morning News. Mm -hmm. The prosecutor in his case hid exculpatory evidence, and and a grievance was filed, and and he, you know, for whatever reason, voluntarily gave up his law license.
0: This is Fair Play on Justicenews.net. This is Fair Play on Justicenews.net.
1: Welcome back to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui. And today we're speaking with criminal defense attorney Mike Ware, who represented Lydell Grant in his fight against his wrongful conviction in 2010 for a murder he did not commit. But what do you think is the role of DNA evidence uh, in exonerations? And what about those who can't afford it? If someone
2: comes to us, and um, and and it it is you know DNA is not the answer in every case, but if if it is a case in which DNA testing would be appropriate, then uh, then we will pay for the test uh, if uh, if there's no other way to get it done. Okay. Now, sometimes we have to meet some
1: legal hurdles.
2: Many times. We run into a district attorney's office that opposes a test. Oppose a, a a DNA test. Yes, they. Oh, often they they will oppose a test.
1: Why would they do that?
2: Well, they don't want to give the defendant an opportunity to prove that they're innocent. Wow. If they can deny them the opportunity to prove that they're innocent, then they can never prove that they're innocent, and they will never be
1: embarrassed. So, do you think our criminal justice system is? At its core, unjust. Um, You know, it's a pretty radical question. You think?
2: Well, I, I, you know, certainly, I can show. Certainly, you can show on with anecdotal examples of how it has been very unjust, and you can show with anecdotal examples of how it has been very just. Um, So it's um, certainly, I think, that um, racial bias and prejudice um, is very much a part of the criminal justice system, and to that extent it's unjust. And and I would say it is at its core um, racist, now, you know, but talking about whether it's just or unjust, I'd be more comfortable looking at it on a case by case basis mm-hmm. and say, you know, it it was unjust here, unjust there, well it was just there. Yeah. Uh you know, it's it's uh but I, I would agree that it is at its core racist and and biased against uh, marginalized
1: demographics. Marginalized against poor people and people of color. Yes. I was talking to an exoneree, and he was saying that about, according to his research, about 50,000 or more innocent people are currently wrongfully incarcerated and trapped in our unjust justice system. What do you suggest those guys should do?
2: Certainly, if if they're in Texas, they can write us.
1: um, And and we get,
2: you know, maybe 100 letters a month. Um, We're not... um, we're, we're a small nonprofit, so um, you know we're, we're limited in what we can take on. But um, I don't know what to tell them other than not to give up hope. And if if ground truth is that they are innocent, uh, if that is the fact and that is the truth, then eventually there should be a way to be able to prove that because facts are very stubborn things. As John Adams once said and and the truth doesn't go away so uh and the truth has a strength all its own so if so if the facts are, and the truth is that they are innocent, that they did not do it, don't give up, and eventually eventually, they should be able to prove it. What do you think it would take to reform the criminal justice system? There's a lot uh first um i I think uh The people in power, such as at the state legislature, need to understand that the people they represent want the criminal justice system reformed. Because until they believe that they may lose an election if they don't reform the criminal justice system, they're not going to reform the criminal justice system. So um, I I think it's going to take an awareness of the voting citizenry. That, that that is something that is important to make this society a better place and that they are going to re, to vote for the candidates who um, are going to help reform the criminal justice system as opposed to the candidates who are just going to help corporations get richer, then, um, then that's what it's going to take. Uh, I mean, I'm, I was elated to see that um, – Larry Krasner was reelected at least at, at this point reelected in Philadelphia as, as their district attorney because he, he was undergoing vicious attacks by the police unions uh, and others and the, you know the people of Philadelphia spoke they believe that criminal justice reform is important uh, and and you know went to the polls and reelected him in spite of the vicious attacks, uh, by the police unions up there, so I think that's what it's going to take.
1: How does it feel to help free the innocent? That is a question.
2: Well, it when we're successful, it feels really good. Um, you know, unfortunately, we're not always successful, and and that feels terrible. But um, um, but uh,
1: the successes keep us going. Do you think that we should do more in terms of supporting public defenders, give them more incentives or opportunities so that they, they would come forward and willingly support someone who is wrongfully convicted and has evidence of his innocence?
2: Well, I always think public defenders should, should have more access to resources. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't really think that's the core of the problem. What do you think is the core of the problem? The criminal justice system is run by prosecutors and police. I think that's the core of the
1: problem. Mm. What do you think is the future of the United States criminal justice system? You know, I, obviously there's a lot more awareness
2: now of how unjust it is. You know, we, we had a, 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 a criminal justice reform agenda at the legislature this session. I'm talking about us, the Innocence Project of Texas. We had about three or four bills that we were really strongly advocating for. All those bills got killed, um, or it appears they, they've been killed. There's, I guess, another three or four days when they could get through. And so I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it just tells me, despite all the big talk and, and, and press conferences after the George Floyd murder, um, that when it came down to it, the people in power, some of the people in power, Um, There were a lot of good people pushing our bills and and supporting our bills, but there were enough people in power who opposed criminal justice reform that our bills got killed. Until those people start paying a political price for doing that, I don't think anything's going to change.
0: This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net.